The Incomparable, September 2010. We're back on The Incomparable Podcast, and the book club is back in session. I'm Jason Snell. Joining me today to discuss books are Dan Morin. Hello, Dan. Hi, Jason. And Scott McNulty is with us as well. Hello. I'm hoping you'll say more this time than the last time. We're going to cater to your strengths today. I will be like a, a prime mime, the only one that is allowed to speak. <laughs> oh, that is a bit of foreshadowing there. And laughing at Scott's joke in the background there is Serenity Caldwell. Ren, welcome. Hello, hello. All right. We are going to talk books today. And I guess since Scott has, has mentioned the prime mime, we will start with a book recommended last month by Dan which is The Gone Away World by Nick Harkaway. Dan, do you want to explain a little bit about uh, what this book is about? And three of the four of us have read it now, so we can discuss it, and Serenity can um, plug her ears or just listen and be amazed. Uh, it's mm. kind of an interesting mishmash book in that it, it sort of starts out as a post-apocalyptic story, and then we go back in time and get the events that lead up to this apocalyptic uh, happening. Uh, and it's centers around these characters in this haulage and hazmat company, uh, and specifically one of them, a guy named Gonzo Lubitsch, who is the best friend of the narrator. Um, and it deals with sort of their the, the intertwined lives of the narrator and his friend Gonzo and how they sort of came up together and uh, their their lives leading up to this, post, this uh, apocalyptic event um, that creates this, uh, basically the, the militaries of the world create this go away bomb that just when set off is supposed to be a very humane weapon, but when set off, it just sort of like obliterates anything. It just makes things not be almost right. It obliterates reality and there are side effects to that, right? Which there are un unanticipated side effects for that. So, uh, after sort of a, nuclear style war in which you know everybody's setting off these bombs the whole world is kind of decimated um and reality itself is kind of torn up and as a result the this company uh the only sort of safe places are these places where this company has this pipeline running that dispenses this gas that actually makes it sort of a habitable uh region again right it it, it sort of uh it's the fox right? And, it, right and basically what it does is it pushes the pushes out the the unreality that's encroaching and kind of forces areas livable areas of reality Exactly. Um, and so, I mean, I found the book really, from my point of view, I found it fascinating because not only has it got this sort of heavy post-apocalyptic vibe, but um, it's kind of intertwined with a story that is largely a, you know, comedy, epic, fantasy, you know, it's such as a melange of all these different uh, genre types. As I was as I was reading it, I, I started to think that every single chapter of the book, and this isn't true after a while, it's not true, but the first like eight or nine chapters, each chapter is essentially its own genre. And mm -hmm. you keep leaping from this one will be about mimes. This one will be about ninjas. This is a coming of age story. This is a post-apocalyptic story. And seriously, and you can't believe that the next chapter is going to be this different from the previous one. And yet it keeps on shifting gears as it goes. And yet it all sort of gets tied together uh, when does. the end comes around with a, with a, surprising, a surprising twist. There is, a, there is a twist. I wanted to start at, at the beginning, though, and ask you this question. Um, I, I've been reading this over the last couple of weeks um, on your recommendation, Dan. I wonder if that first chapter is necessary because the first chapter, it does this the same thing that you saw. Uh, you've seen in a bunch of different TV shows. It's this narrative 
device where you start in the middle of the action and then you flash back. Yes. And I was I was very confused by it because not only are you being plopped down in the middle of the action, but and you don't know what's going on. But then as soon as you start to get some clue about what might be going on. Then everything backs up, and it's like you're reading a completely different book. You don't really know what's going on. There's very little in common, and it takes a long time for you to get back there. And the moment that is flashed back from is not a particularly uh, revelatory moment. There is a revelatory moment in the book. That's not where we start. Well, so it's, a, I, it's kind of at the setup, right? Like the first right. chapter is the they, this company gets hired to go into you know the sort of the dangerous zone um, for a job. Uh, and then we flash back and explain how the characters, the main sort of characters met. But I agree. It's very, it's kind of jarring because you start, uh, you know, especially if you're, you know, the kind of person who reads a, the book jacket and thinks, oh, okay, this book, this is a book about X. Um, and you're like, okay, it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic book. Okay. And so you go in and the first chapter does have that post-apocalyptic setup, but it is very, there's not a little, it takes a little time to get oriented in the world. And then, as you say, once you do the sort of the carpet, it kind of gets pulled out from under you and you get thrust back into explaining how everything got to that point so if you're saying yeah i I think i agree to a certain extent that that there's a there's a weird sort of structure to that first couple chapter yeah i'm not sure i needed that first chapter i think i've almost i I might have almost preferred it to just be linear and tell me the story that leads to the world being gone away instead of sort of seeing this weird post-apocalyptic period and then and then wondering for a while if there had been an error in the book (laughs) I totally thought the first chapter was not needed whatsoever, and I didn't like it at all. And I, it made, it kind of set me up to not like the book at all, uh, which is unfortunate, because in the end, I did like the book. After get, I would even go as far as to say, if you're going to read this book, just skip the first chapter. You don't need to read the first chapter. <laughs> or, or you can come back to it when you reach that point. I wish I, I don't actually know off the top of my head what chapter it fits between, but you literally could just rip it out and put it in space later because there's a brief recap, but essentially you could just drop it in there and say, all right, now read this and then continue. And I think this was his first novel. I don't know if he's written anything else since then, but I think he's fa- he falls into the trap that many first novelists do, and that is I need to show off my dazzling writing skills at any moment and structure this novel in such a way that is new and makes it interesting and makes it, uh, you know, something that you want to read and actively think about, uh, which I just found annoying in this case. <laughs> well, I think he's got it. I mean, personally, I liked his style. I think he's got... Uh quite away with words and his prose i found i really enjoyed um he, he does seem to have a deft touch with it but i understand that's not necessarily everybody's style or to everybody's liking the sort of ornateness no I, I i like the book overall so i mean i know that everything i've said so far may lead you to think i didn't but i did enjoy it why you gotta be so hostile scott jeez <laughs> i'm just an angry man i have to go to the gym <laughs> later it's it's not a good day uh but i spent the last uh five hours reading you know, the last half of the book because uh, I we had an assignment and I had to finish it, damn it. Uh, and so I enjoyed it and I thought it was it was a very good book, but I don't think that I felt a lot of times that he was just kind of showing off when he was writing, which I found a little... I don't like writing that calls attention to itself. I liked his I liked his prose style, but I thought I think that he made some narrative choices that you could tell were sort of uh, a show off. And, and that's... I, I agree with you there. I, I feel like... Um, <laughs> that uh, he didn't have to do what he did to start to start the book out, and it was showy, and I don't think it was necessary. Which is not to say that I I like the book too. Um, 
Oh, one of the things that, I, I mean, there's so many things that there are ninjas, there are mimes, there is a prime mime who can speak, but the other mimes can't speak. There is this post-apocalyptic world, there's some romance, there is a massive plot twist that, quite honestly, I, I want to talk about that. And it, One of the problems with this podcast is I don't know what we should spoil and what we should not spoil and whether we should talk about it kind of obliquely mm. versus versus not. But um, well, It's what an unreliable fast- narrator, we could say it, that. Sort of. Kind or, of. Or is it? But, I don't know. But but there's this this moment where um, not only does the plot twist happen, but the plot twist is preceded, or I guess in the middle of this plot twist, there is a moment of kind of a shocking moment where where I I was really emotionally affected by the fact that we basically this main character we've been following all along, and he's fallen in love, and he uh, he marries this woman. And, um, and then it, his entire marriage and in some ways it seems his entire life is ripped away and it's, it's quite brutal. And I thought very effective. I I was really affected by the fact that, um, our poor narrator has suddenly lost his happy home and his wife and his marriage. And, uh, and then that's not even, that's just the start of it. It's like, why did this happen? But that first moment was really powerful. I thought. I agree. I think, I think there is a. You know, I, a certain extent, I will I will say this. I mean, you know, going in, you kind of know the narrator is never really mentioned by name. And that turns out to be, you know, an important point later on. But I think in, that, in some ways that drew attention to it, right? Because, you know, you whenever you read something where there's a key piece of information deliberately omitted, you, you know, you always kind of have that in the back of your head that there, okay, there must be a reason why this choice was made. Um and- the narrator's Sorry, kind of, and the narrator's childhood is very strange as well. That makes you think, well, something's not right here. Right. Exactly. It's clear. It's clear when the narrator's introduced that uh, something has gone on because he's introduced crying and um, after some horrible event that you're not told what it is, and so it sets up a question. But it turns out that's not quite the right question to ask about the history of the well, narrator. It, it it's a, it's a red herring, right? It sends you yeah. down one path, and and you don't. I mean, and which is good because it distracts you and thinks you have a maybe an idea of what the answer is behind this this character's story, and then realize later that it's you know 180 degrees from that or whatever. Um, and, so when and the I, plot twist happened. Um, I want to ask you guys this. I I was initially mad because I felt like he wasn't playing fair and that it was it was really a cheat. And it I, I over the next couple of chapters, as it all sort of got resolved, I felt like it was not as much of a cheat as I had initially thought. Because I was like, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? Don't we know all these things? And it became clear later that it wasn't entirely a cheat. But I want to ask you guys. You know, did you get that feeling that it's like, well, okay, I see this as a twist, but does is does it really hold up with what we thought we knew earlier? Well, uh, I mean, okay, I, I, it's been a while since I've read the book, unfortunately, because I keep recommending it to everyone else because I read it like a year ago. Um, but I think, I, as I recall reading it at that point, I sort of finished up the end of the book in a big chunk. I, I very much remember pushing, like, having to sort of put the book aside for a second and just kind of think about it and sort of <laughs> yeah. retrace everything that had happened in like, okay – yeah what does this make sense and i think i i came to that conclusion a little quick, quicker that like oh my god this really you know like you flip back through the book and check a couple things or whatever and you're like oh wait no this really does make a lot of like not only answer a lot of questions but also sort of fit in with the whole tone and plot of the book um and so i guess i didn't feel as much of that it, i didn't have that initial reaction that it was a cheat i was but i was sort of as you said jason i was very affected by it and very uh 
sort of impressed with the fact that it was not what I had expected at all. What about you, Scott? Well, I thought at first I thought it was a cheat because I actually and I think that he wanted you to miss miss misunderstand what the twist was exactly. And so I kind of because I don't, without ruining it, I think it's hard to talk about it. So I thought one thing had happened, uh, and then a few chapters later, it is clear what actually did happen. And once okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna fire the spoiler horn here <laughs> and and say we're about to talk about the the plot twist in detail. And if you don't want to hear, we, um, advance we a few minutes in the podcast. Do we have an actual spoiler horn? Because um, I think going forward, we should. <laughs> All right, so so Scott, what you were saying is, so what did you? It turns out that that we should just say it turns out what happens is the narrator is actually the imaginary friend of Gonzo Lubitsch and didn't exist except that when Gonzo gets some unreality stuff sprayed on him by accident, um, he. Every time I describe this, I, I'm like waiting for you to say, no, no, you've completely misunderstood it. He, he, he essentially becomes manifest. And so all of this imaginary friend, including all of the sort of Gonzo's impulses that he wants to suppress, and he sort of pushes off on his imaginary friend, um, are essentially ripped out of Gonzo, and he is, made, he is made manifest. So it's not really a cheat that the imaginary friend is talking about his life in the past, because he has those memories. It's just that they're actually an aspect of Gonzo's personality that has been torn away from him into this second person. Well, and then, of course, at the same time, Gonzo is left as a very different person. Right, because he, he no longer has that, that uh, you know, person sitting on his shoulder um, with that part of his conscience, basically, saying, you should, maybe you should do this. No, no, I'm not interested in that. Or the things that he's pushed away when he's uncertain about who he is or did he do the right thing? Sometimes he'll compartmentalize it, I think we would say, and put it in this other person. And now it's gone, which means he is a much more sure kind of person, even though he may not actually be sure. He just took his, his uncertainty and shoved it in this other guy who who was balancing his personality and is now gone because he's now walking around in in reality. And in that sense, you know, if you wanted to draw the immediate parallel that I drew, um, and I hope this isn't a spoiler for anybody, is uh, Fight Club. Um, yeah, sorry, put the spoiler going back in. Um, which has a very, very, very similar device in it. Um, and I think that there's, you know... The, I, but I mean, again, I think what makes sense about it here is that we've already been led up into all this, how uh, exposure to the, the stuff, the unreality aspect um, is very unpredictable and has these kind of effects. You know, we've sort of been led up to that the entire way through as we watched uh, these characters deal with this this fallout, basically. Um, and so for me, that's why I, did, I felt like, oh, wow, that really makes sense because we've, you know, we've sort of experienced this through their their adventures and journeys up to right. this point. Scott, so Scott, what did you think the twist really meant before you found out that it didn't mean that? So that was what the twist was. But when I read it, I thought, uh, I thought that the stuff had erased the narrator. And yes, so- me too. And I was like, well, what this doesn't really make any sense because that's not – I mean through the whole book, that is not what this stuff does and it doesn't do this. So what's going on? And I was very confused. And then it, then Gonzo shoots him and I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. Uh, and then he explains what went on. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. Well, and, and it makes that scene – once you realize that the scene where the narrator um, discovers that his wife doesn't know him, it actually makes it I think even more affecting because now you realize that it's even worse than that. It's that Gonzo can't – can't really fit 
he hit one aspect of his personality, which is him as this kind of tough guy adventurer with this other aspect, which is him as a guy with a home life. And in many ways, his relationship with his wife was compartmentalized and has now been stripped from him and is in this other guy because the other guy loves Gonzo's wife and Gonzo doesn't know quite how to relate to her anymore. And it's very sad because, you know, he, I think Harkaway is trying to say something about how we all contain multitudes. And what if you actually like took pieces of yourself and not to get all Star Trek, but, you know, split them in two. And then you've got two different pieces of yourself and they would, it wouldn't work the same way. Right. And the only way Gonzo can express his feelings for his wife is to go and, uh, you know, take uh, his other half away and, because he feels that the other half is uh, right. you know, trying to right. threaten or take his wife away. So he takes the other guy <laughs> and shoots and, him, and shoots him <laughs> multiple times and pushes him out of a moving truck. Well, I mean, because it, you, you get this very much, I mean, if you wanted to go into sort of a psychological profile, you could say it's sort of separating his like his id from his, you know, super ego type thing where it's like he's primal, like the gonzo that you're left with is a very sort of impulsive violent like you know but 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 heroic well it's what gonzo liked to think of himself right. as right it's like the part of gonzo gonzo was comfortable right. being but he's also a very you know he's got that very he's rough around the edges he doesn't necessarily have that like sensitivity right and the you know i, I think even you know i love that harkaway does a great job of like talking about the the martial arts styles that they both study and how um you know the the narrator has, you know, did never really fit in with the sort of, you know, brutal strength-based martial arts stuff that Gonzo really favored. Right. And instead took this sort of the softer approach of, you know, something that's kind of sort of almost an Aikido-like martial arts where it's all about, um, you know, control and balance and, you know, agility and all those things. And I liked how that was um, such an interesting, like, divergent, like it was a great a way of, of expressing who these two characters were. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the moments where I really didn't... I thought it was a cheat. I was like, well, wait, how can he not be Gonzo if the if they did all that stuff with the with the master of the martial arts and it turns out that's the story is that there were parts of Gonzo's life that didn't really work for him and didn't fit with his self image so he stuck him on the side and it was the soft martial arts didn't really fit in with his tough guy image he didn't want to talk about the fact that he was involved with the very people who invented the the go away bomb he right. didn't want to, so he compartmentalized that completely and just basically act as if I was never with the scientists that's not who I am I'm a tough guy adventurer I'll stick that over over here and so in the end the narrator ends up being the guy in the lab coat who was there when they invented the bombs instead of gonzo um yeah it, it very very interesting and I, I should also point out for those who are who have heated who have not heated the spoiler horn um you know the the plot twist isn't the end <laughs> there's a lot that happens after the plot twist sure and i yeah. found that the most interesting because i was like oh my god there's this big plot interest uh, plot twist and then i look and i'm like i still have like a third of the book to read what is going to happen yeah exactly um should should we fire the spoiler horn the all clear yes 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 bring the <laughs> <laughs> uh so so in the end Dan, I know your verdict on the Gone Away World because you've recommended it to lots of people. Um, Scott, did you like it? I mean, you said you kind of liked it in the end, right? I did. I thought it was very good. I mean, I think if you take it in the frame of mind that it's his first novel and it's a fun read and it's not what you're expecting. And don't read the first chapter. And don't read the first chapter. <laughs> uh, it was well done. I enjoyed it. Uh, I really, I highlighted a bunch of things that I thought were very funny. I highlighted some stuff too, because I thought that it, I thought there was some really good stuff in here. And I'll just read uh, one 
Well, maybe I'll read two of them. One of them that I thought was really good. This is the great thing about reading on the Kindle is that I can actually call up my highlights on the web and read them, which is pretty cool. The rest of her communication has been removed with a razor blade, leaving me holding a limp carcass of eviscerated notepaper. It's a little spooky. It's a zombie letter. In the middle of the night, it will rise from the grave and eat the other letters, starting with the headings. Then it will crawl out into the camp and begin its rampage, and some of the scraps it leaves behind will also reanimate. The undead paper plague will spread until nothing can stop it. And Bwahaha is actually in the book. It's not me <laughs> saying it. And, and and very some almost like Douglas Adams-ish sort of uh asides that um about the zombie letters and there's a there's a riff he does about serial numbers, which as a tech writer I, I love that there are these long serial numbers that you could never make enough to fill all the serial numbers in the history of all of the planet Earth, and yet they do it. Um, just some really funny passages that that not a lot of books aren't like that, where where you can just be reading a paragraph and out of context you can still go, okay, that was really funny. And and there are even sentences that are just really funny. And I highlighted mostly just sentences. I also highlighted the the zombie letter thing, Jason. So oh, nice. Have, if I had turned on social highlighting uh, on the Kindle. <laughs> anyway, very funny. Um, and I liked it too. So I, I, I don't hold it against Dan for recommending that I buy this book. Thanks God. Well, as I understand, he's actually working on a new book, which I, I am very much looking forward to. Well, you should be, you've, you've sold, you've made dozens of dollars for him and royalties <laughs> for your buddy, Nick Harkaway. This is all an so, affiliate scheme, isn't it, Dan? You get some uh, kind of yeah. Kickback. If you would just mind clicking through my podcast, I, <laughs> that's right. The incomparable <laughs> affiliate links will uh, make us all rich. Uh, let's move on and talk about another book that we mentioned in passing. Um, and this also will fulfill our Zeppelin quotient for the podcast. Excellent. I yes. The gone away world, sadly, Zeppelin free. Check. Zeppelin free. Again, as Dan pointed out in the last book podcast, there is a large um, kind of truck thing, but it's not a Zeppelin. It is It is not even close to a Zeppelin. Not a Zeppelin. No, sadly. not even remotely. It, was, it turns out that was quite a stretch to make that claim, Dan. Um, Bone Shaker by Sherry Priest. Uh, is a kind of steampunky uh, zombie uh, adventure novel. And it uh, does feature a Zeppelin, a, a stolen Confederate Zeppelin in an alt-history civil war that has gone on much longer than the actual civil war did. Um, I read this as part of the set of uh, Hugo Award nominees. I should point out, actually, that The City in the City and The, and the Wind-Up Girl, which we mentioned on the last book podcast, tied for the Hugo Award for Best Novel. Jason so is very happy then, right? I am happy because those were my two favorites. And I, <laughs> Although it turns out that if I, if I ranked City in the City ahead of The Wind-Up Girl... It would have won by itself, so I feel kind of responsible for the tie. <laughs> you are a jerk, Jason. Jerk. But that's it's fine because I, I wanted the wind-up girl to get an award, so it, I'm happy. I'm very happy. Anyway, Bone Shaker, I think, finished – I'm going to say I think it maybe finished third, but um, it was one of the runners-up. Um, I – I ranked it below the the other two because I didn't think I thought it was a fun romp. I didn't think it was quite as substantial as these other two books were. But as a kind of a young adult, it's got a it's got a it's got a mom as the as the protagonist and then a kid, her son as the other protagonist, a young man. Um, and they have an adventure in the city of Seattle in the late 1800s. But it's this alt history world where there's been a machine. The bone shaker has dug up the ground in Seattle and released this gas that turns people into zombies, essentially. And then the, the son gets lost in the city and the mom goes to find him and turns out there are people living amid the ruins. Um, 
and uh, and then there's the stolen zeppelin. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, Scott, uh, what do you think about Bone Shaker? Uh, I thought it, you took the words right out of my mouth. It was a lot of fun. It wasn't. Uh, I uh, Gone Away World made me think, which is always a good thing. A bone Shaker, not too much thinking going on, but a lot of no. enjoyment. Yeah, it was a it was a romp. I mean, there's there's. I'm not say it, it didn't make me feel stupid or anything. I, mean, I don't feel no, uh, no. worse. <laughs> I did think while reading it, but uh... yeah, but it was it was not. It was a fun read. I was sitting on a beach reading the Gone Away World, thinking this might not thematically be the best choice for sitting on a beach. Uh, Bone Shaker felt a little more beachy in that sense of like it's fun and there's chases and you're running away from the zombie horde and people with weapons and and uh, you know aerial. Uh, fight scenes in the gondola of the zeppelin um kind of uh yeah just yeah. a lot of fun a lot of fun stuff and a mysterious two mysterious evil geniuses that one turns out to be not so geniusy but at least there are two of them yes that's right that's right that that was a um i've seen that i've seen that uh story trick before but i i liked it a lot which is um you have a character who may or may not be this figure from the past. And one of the characters says early on, oh no, he's not that guy. And you spend, I'm not going to fire the spoiler horn yet, but, um, and it's a great moment because if you catch it, you, you say to yourself, aha, this person knows something that nobody else knows about that. What happened to that guy? And that is in, indeed at the end, you find out what really happened to the, to the, this other person. And it's a really nice, a really nice moment that I liked a lot. But uh, I love that moment where it's like, if you're paying close enough attention, you'll realize one character knows more than anybody else knows about what happened. And she isn't sharing. I appreciate that they kept it drawn out for that long, where I was, I was kind of expecting that that was going to like, we would find out why this certain character was dead or alive. I was expecting we'd find it out like maybe midway through the book, but I appreciate that they held on till about the last 10 pages before we actually get the big reveal and be like, oh, that's why. And it makes so much sense after that. You're like, oh, of course, of course, this person would know that and potentially, yes, I'm I might well, say too it, much, it's so I'm gonna um, stop there. you know the the format of the book is these alternating chapters, and there are several moments actually where you feel like you're going to bring the two characters together, the mom and her son, and and I think uh, she does a really great job of frustrating the reader, and you know I love it when I get frustrated as a reader because that's part of the fun of reading a book. It's like oh they were so close, and and then they're split apart again, and they didn't find each other, so. Um, it's it's a you know it's a fun it's a fun kind of romp with a lot of these the fact that it's set in a historical period is is a lot of fun because you you don't have high tech solutions to problems you you know the most high tech solution that you've got is a gas mask and a zeppelin which is pretty high tech really well i mean it's tech i suppose i'm not sure it's not a high tech zeppelin it's a low tech zeppelin well, a stolen confederate zeppelin how good could a stolen confederate zeppelin really be well that zeppelin was the cadillac of zeppelins of that time I gotta say, when I first started reading the book, the book tricked me a little bit because when I first started reading, like the prologue is great. The prologue could be a book within itself because so much happens where you're like, all right, so it's, you know, Civil War period and, you know, oh, there are Zeppelins and there was, and, and yellow zombie gas. Yeah, but, but you don't even get to the gas yet. All it's right, just, the bone shaker, a giant drill yeah. that you can imagine being this giant steam operated thing with a giant drill bit on the front that goes into the earth and. 
Well, I just love this setup where they're like, oh, yes, the Russians have found gold in Alaska, so they don't want to sell it to the U.S. quite yet, but they can't get at the gold. So what are they going to do? They're going to hire a U.S. You know, builder <clears throat> yeah, to actually make something to get at that gold. So then maybe they won't have to sell it to the U.S. after all. And then so you get like all of this interesting history stuff and you're like, oh, cool. very. And then you're like, oh, no, no, that's actually just the first five pages. And then after that, it's all about the aftermath of this horrible machine that was theoretically done for good and then turned into evil and basically destroyed half of a city and, yeah, released the zombie gas. It's just, it's interesting how much backstory they man uh, Cherry Priest manages to pack in into that ten pages. Apparently, there's another book in this um, in this universe that's about about the Zeppelin. <laughs> believe it or not, so I've got about the Confederate about the Confederate Zeppelin. Zeppelin. Yeah, that 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 is a primary feature, and so it sort of like flies through this story, but is then it part of its own story. And I wonder how much of that is just okay. This is the world that I built. Here, here it is in the first first chapter. Now let's get to the the real point. But you're right; it was really rich, and then the, the first full chapter is interesting because it's um actually a little bit more down than than the book as a whole it's like she really wanted to take you down to this depressing it's like she's working in this factory and it and her son doesn't appreciate her and he runs away and it's and they have to wear these layers of clothing to avoid the 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 stuff that's dripping out of the sky from this yellow goo and it's just this miserable terrible world that they live in on the walls outside of seattle and it, it you know it's almost as if you expect the next thing to be um, like in so many fantasy stories. It's like, but then, uh, then they opened a door to a magical place where things were better, <laughs> and the magical place where things are better is um, where all the zombies are, I guess. <laughs> and yet, it did feel it seems- like things opened up when we got into Seattle and there were zombies everywhere. I keep on drawing a conc- or drawing like parallels between of all things in American Tale, which is like a really bizarre <laughs> thing to. But it's still, it's like you have the same kind of thematic ideas where, oh, we have to go to a new place, and this new place is also scary and crazy, and and there are a lot of points in that film where people keep missing each other, and specifically family members. So it's a very weird who's, comparison who's to make. Who's Fivel in Bone Shaker? Is it the boy? Is it the mom? Is it? The, I think it's the boy. Is it the mad the scientist? The boy is Fivel. <laughs> All right. Is there? A, I haven't seen American Tale in. A million years. years. Is there is there a mad scientist who kills people in an American Tale? I th- oh, that's the Rats is, of Nim. Sorry, I'm, I n- no. Well, there's a there's a mad scientist in the Rats of Nim. I'm trying to remember if it's in. Well, actually, there there are crazy contraptions in both American Tale and Fievel Goes West, are, as I remember. Oh, Fievel Goes West. Are, are there zeppelins? <laughs> there are. Wait, no, oh, I don't think there are right. zeppelins. Mm. There, there, there are flying pigeons. Something no. flies. Don't but, pigeons usually fly? <laughs> yes. Exactly. So the, they're the pigeons I know. As far as, as far as flying things go. Here in California, I, the pigeons <laughs> fly on a zeppelin, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts about Bone Shaker? I mean, I, I would recommend it. I, I, I think it's a good. I also think it's good for a younger, not you know, not a not a kid audience, but like a young adult audience. I think that's sort of one of the one of the targets of that book because it's not particularly you know nasty for a zombie right. book I, I think it's just a, a really fun really fun read and it's got a got a teenage character who's likable but it's also got the mom and uh it was a lot of fun that's true i don't know if the boy was that likable but <laughs> well he gets he's in over his head he's, he's a jerk <laughs> Well, I I don't know. I I thought well, I he I thought he he had a reason to do what he did, and then he realized kind of quickly that he had totally blown it. Which well, I mean, how how smart do you have to be 
to think, <laughs> oh, I really should not go into this uh, zombie-infested city and look for someone who may or may not be there. It doesn't take much you know, kids. to think, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea and I should just go back to school. Well, you've got to, you've got to give him credit, though. He, um, he goes in by tunnel. As opposed to his mom, who has to hitch a ride on a Zeppelin. That's true, but she only has to hitch a ride on a Zeppelin because the tunnel collapsed. It's true. It's true. And the tunnel wouldn't have collapsed if he hadn't gone into it. Yes. There, I, li- I like some You're of the... you he caused an earthquake? He, he did. <laughs> One of the images in that book that I really like is the, uh, the... There's a whole family of Chinese people who run this strange <laughs> pumping... It's the Chinese like railroad laborers, and they've stayed in Seattle, and they run this strange air pumping station where they blow in fresh air. They've got big tubes that stick up into the sky to pull in the fresh air, and then they pump it into the... Uh, down below. And it's such a bizarre industrial just such a strange image and i and i thought that was really funny well it's hard to imagine too it's just hard to picture in your head especially because at one point uh the mother actually goes down one of those tubes and trying to get a mental picture while you're reading this and you're like she's talking about gripping onto the ridges and things like that you're i don't exactly know how this thing is staying upright you know hundreds of feet into the air but it sounds pretty cool yeah yeah all right, I'm going to welcome Dan back from his isolation chamber. That was great in there. I really, I had a nice time to relax, catch up on some things, you know, take a little nap. And now you can read Bone Shaker, which you have, right? You have. I have. It's on my bedside table, and it will be joining me on my uh, my travels this week. Nice, very nice. I, I, you know what? And despite the the advent of ebooks and the convenience of reading stuff on your iPad, I still, it's you know that takeoff and landing part. You know when you got to put all your stuff away, still, still got to have an actual paper book there. I hear you. I, I, I endorse oh. this plan. I hate that moment oh. when they want you to turn off your Kindle. Those, but they're bastards. But that's I they are. I take that opportunity to enjoy the in-flight magazine. That's right. That's what magazines are for. Yes, Sky Mall, man. Let me tell you, <laughs> uh, I've I've gotten at least six different hot dog cookers um, just because I'm I'm addicted. It's a problem. I, I just eat the hot dogs raw. It solves that problem. I'm feeling rather sick now. Yeah, though. you're a brave man. <laughs> Let's talk about William Gibson now. Now, um, speaking of gears hot again. dogs, <laughs> speaking of hot dogs, he, William Gibson loves a hot dog. That's true. Um, that's a little known fact about William Gibson. He has a new book out called Zero History, um, which I actually bought. I think it's the first book that I bought on the day of release in maybe ever, and it's mostly because I could pre-order it and have it delivered to my to my Kindle for thirteen dollars or something like that. But I've only read the first couple of chapters of it. Um, it's the third Gibson seems to be a trilogy kind of guy. He, he, it's the third in his third set of trilogies. So I don't know what he does now that he's got three trilogies. Does he stop? It's a nonology. Um, no, but they're not, they're not connected. He had, or he had are they? Oh, that, well, that is the 10th mm-hmm. book. We'll connect them all. Ah, the master, the master stroke. So he, he, um, this is the se- sequence that began with the book pattern recognition, um and continued in a book whose name now totally I believe this is it spook country spook country that's right and now we'll conclude with zero history um and so i because i haven't read pattern recognition or i mean i haven't read read zero history yet 
uh, some of the same characters as Spook Country and as Pattern Recognition. They're set in the present day uh, to contrast with Neuromancer, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive, which was his first trilogy, which was set in a future and cyberspace and and no cell phones, which is very funny to read those now. And there are all these payphones everywhere. And it's like, no. Um, I loved Pattern Recognition, though. I don't know if any of you guys have read that one. I read it. Um, I liked it, but I did not. I did not. I was not quite as enthusiastic about it as many others were. Hmm. That's the that's the one where the uh, main character is allergic to the Michelin Man. Yes, and other branding and other marketing. And, yeah, yeah. Now, I I I was the one who suggested we should talk about William Gibson, and at this point, I should uh, admit that I in fact don't like William Gibson. <laughs> Go for it! <laughs> it's, it's a trap. <laughs> this this is not a, a mutual admiration society here, it, or even a William Gibson admiration society. And so, I really liked. I don't know. Have any of you read the Difference Engine? Sterling. Yes, yeah. I have. Yeah, William Gibson Sterling. I really like that. Oh wow, that's my least favorite thing he's done by about a mile. <laughs> well, see, there you go. And then so I read Neuromancer because you know you have to read Neuromancer because it is. I actually read that fairly late. I only read it, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, I guess. Um, and I really liked it, even though it does have this weird. I I kind of enjoy those books that are clearly products. Um, of a past era, like interpolating into the future, and they just totally like missed something. Um, you know, like like mobile phones, as Jason's saying. Um, I find it fascinating because it, it provides such an insight to the period in which it was written. Right. Um, and I thought Neuromancer was a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. I thought the next two were not as good, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and I kind of lost a little bit of the of whatever magic that he'd gotten into Neuromancer. Um, but. Yeah, he's he has a very interesting view on on the future and on, you know, science fiction technological developments and all that. Well, in his books, I mean, he said that his books are obviously commentaries about about the time in which they're written. So Neuromancer is you know set in the 2020s or whatever, but it's really about the 80s and it's about uh technology interfacing with with people in a way that that did happen in just not in kind of the detail but um a lot of that did come true and then bits of it didn't but, but that that scene still i mean you mentioned the payphones and of course that oh. reminds me of it's such a great scene yeah um, that's my favorite scene in neuromancer where where case the main character is walking through an air i think it's like the airport in somewhere in switzerland it's like the the I don't know. It's a, it's an airport in Europe, right. and, and there's a walking, line of payphones. Right, and 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 the AI is trying to reach him, and each time he takes a step past one of these payphones, uh, the payphone rings, and as he's walking, the payphone next to him continues to ring, and they just it goes down the line, and can fo- the rings follow him because it knows exactly where he is. Which is funny because because we talked about Sherlock on one of our movie, our TV podcast, and. They they use that same device in the very first episode, which I thought was a, a, yeah. I, I assumed was a, maybe an homage to Neuromancer, but yeah. And I, I have in the in the first of my two unpublished <clears throat> novels that I wrote, I wrote a scene where um, that is an homage to that scene too, because I love that I love that scene so much. Um, it, it's interesting, Scott. Do you not like? His writing style? Do you not like the subject matter? Um, I, I'm curious. I, I just don't. I think the best part of Neuromancer was the first sentence, and then after that, he lost me, <laughs> which is never a good thing. Uh, it's a great opening line, though. It is. It is a It's one of my favorite opening lines. So I'll, I'll I, I, I'm very distressed because I, I saw um, the the Scottish sci-fi writer Charlie Strauss basically. Um, 
sort of homaged it in the opening line to one of his books, but yes. I thought it was unfortunate because I didn't like that book nearly as much. <laughs> I, I didn't like the book, but it, but he made a very funny point, which is, again, in 1984 or whenever um, uh, Gibson wrote Neuromancer, um, a TV, the, the opening line is the sky over the port was uh, the color of a television tuned to a dead channel. The idea being it was this gray, speckly sky because when you turn to a dead channel, you get static. Except today, if you turn to a dead channel, you tend to get just like a blue square. And so Strauss's joke was that it was a bright, sunny day and and the sky was as blue as a dead television turned to a dead channel. <laughs> it's just like the meaning has completely changed since Neuromancer was written. Um, that wasn't as good, but sadly but, that book also went downhill after the first sentence. So. Yeah, See? yeah. Uh, so, so what I'd say about pattern recognition, um, I think a lot of people, the perception of Gibson was that after um, Neuromancer, it was all downhill, and he was kind of a after that bit of first a flesh. opening sentence of Neuromancer, it is <laughs> yes, all you, downhill. <laughs> this podcast is over. <laughs> Um, now, but I actually, I thought, I thought Mona Lisa Overdrive was pretty good, although maybe not as good as Neuromancer. I, I thought he made a comeback in that. And then I feel like he got lost. I think that his middle, his, his second trilogy of books, which were that all tomorrow's parties and oh, I forget what the other names were. It's sort of set in this kind of uh rundown Bay area and people are living on the Bay bridge. And I really didn't like those. I don't, didn't think they were very good, but when he, he did pattern recognition, he, he wrote his first book that was kind of tangibly set in the present day or close to the present day and that book you know dan you don't like it like i I like it i i I think that's his best book i think it's better than neuromancer and and part of that is because it's it does speak to today and corporations with marketing messages and how people try to affect other people and how the internet gets gets used for marketing and gets used in these kind of strange kind of uh uh, social ways that aren't really anticipated until they until they emerge, and I mean, there's just so much about it that really hit home for me. Plus, it was a fun kind of adventure, which is sort of his trademark, right? Is that he's writing these kind of '40s movie pulp adventures with this technology sheen on top of them? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess what what fell f- a little flat to me um, was there's this one central sort of conceit in pattern recognition that has to do with um, the footage, as they call it. Right. Um, which is interesting, but at the same time, I guess I had trouble really grasping what about... Like, the way he tries to describe the emotional response that's pulled up by people watching this and, and is sort of the what turns it into a, a phenomenon um, I fell sort of flat with me. And maybe that's because I read it again a few years after it had come out and at that point, um, I think it was it was interesting because I think he did sort of manage to write about something that had that is now almost commonplace. This idea of sort of viral media, um, and yet it it seemed it seemed not as far fetched. I think, and I had a hard time ex- sort of coming to terms with how people reacted to the extent that they did in the book. Um, I found that a little hmm. hard to empathize with, but there there are a number of things I quite liked about the book. Um, I thought the main character is very interesting. Um, I like the sort of the manipulations that go on behind the scenes um, and sort of the 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 uh, intrigue and and all that that's connected with the plot. For me, um, if you asked me what writers. Um, just as stylists, um, prose 
stylists, what writers do you appreciate the most? And if you're if you're a writer, it may be who do you wish you could write like? And if you ask me that question, the two answers I'd probably give you right off the bat would be Nick Hornby yep. and William Gibson. I think I would I would think I would sub Michael Chabon for for William he, Gibson, but he would be number three on my list, uh, and he could fight it out with William Gibson if if that would be fun to see. That, that would be a great case. Two, two writers enter, one leaves. <laughs> And then the other leave shortly thereafter. So, so really, Dan, that would be that would be your uh, your pair would be Michael Chabon and uh, and uh, Nick Hornby. Hornby would be pretty close to the top. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's something about him, and I know he's he doesn't necessarily fall into the vein of the the kind of stuff we talk about, but he's actually he makes me laugh out loud. You could um, argue you could argue that Slam, Slam yeah, I was thinking you going to say is, Slam. Slam is, is a fantastic of, book, and it and it's a it, and it's genre in the sense that it involves. Um, it's potentially science fiction fantasy, maybe well, a little bit. T- the Tony Hawk appears in many places mystically <laughs> as a magical sort of <laughs> spirit guy. Well, and there's also sort of a parallel universe, uh, right. Time travel, possibly. Right. He sort of sees things that happen, and then and then he backs up. That's and, also just it's just a fantastic book, and anybody who hasn't read it should read it because it, it is, is laugh out loud funny. You talk about authors who 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 maybe got off track and then got back on track. I actually think that Hornby, Hornby's last two, Slam, and what's the one that Juliet Naked? I think are actually both really great returns. Oh, to and I, I would add a uh, long way down to that, which I long way down is good. It's fantastic. it's not so basically how to be good was bad. But. How do we get? I just read that. And it's not a <laughs> that, not that is clearly far and away his weakest book. Um. Right. So what about what so about you guys, Ren and? Ren and Scott, um, writers that you really admire for just as their ability to write? I have to think about that one for right. a second. Scott, you go. Oh, uh, uh, well, Don DeLillo. Is anyone, he's not a science fiction oh, writer at all. Well, yeah. I guess maybe. Well, yeah, he kind of is. Kind of. Uh, I don't know. But he's really, he's, he is uh, someone I wish I could write like. I don't think I ever would be able to. Uh, Douglas Adams, one of my favorite writers. Right. Right, I'm not sure if I if I'm as big a fan of his his skill, uh, you know, stylistically, but the number of ideas and his sense of humor just unbelievable. How much stuff he could pack into such a small amount of space, and then he, you know, he'd do that over the course of hundreds of pages, over and over again, which is yeah, uh, amazing. I, I uh, the mind boggles at what that man could think of, and then I mean, I there are so many other people that are just jammed in my mind. I don't know. I think that uh, you know Jasper Ford. Not to go back to him, but I. I, he's, I hear he's very good. He is very good. He's one of my favorite. I really he's like. So funny. Fu- yeah, exactly. He's very funny. I wish I could look. Ren, Ren has heard of Jasper. Ford. Well, see there. You go. Yes. That's <laughs> because. Are we, are we allowed? To, are we allowed to, to, to quote dead people? Because uh, in that case, I can add Raymond Chandler to my list, who is yes. who is possibly one of the best prose stylists of the 20th century. Dead people count. You could say Shakespeare if you like, Dan. I, I don't that know be... that. I think that would be. I mean, he's a he is you know a writer without parallel, but at the same time, hack. he is a <laughs> no Zeppelin. Yeah, if you tried. I don't think he would say, I he wish was, I could write like Shakespeare. You know, after that <laughs> opening sentence in uh, Romeo and Juliet, it really just went downhill. It just goes downhill. It just goes down. That first rhyming couplet is so lame. I mean, come on. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? All right. Please, after that. Please don't. Blah. <laughs> Ren, have, have we stalled enough for you to give yes, us an answer? Yes, yes, you've stalled enough. I think, well, most recently, I think one of the sort of up-and-coming authors to watch is definitely max brooks at least for me like oh. Wo- world war z was the first book i read of hers and then i went back and read his like zombie thing and i'm not a big zombie person in general but world war z has such a spunk to it and such like really well crafted individual stories and they keep you very invigorated and like both 
both on like just reading the book, but also listening to the audiobook. And I find it's it's rare that you can have a book that translates so well as in on the written page and then also as an audiobook slash radio play. So it's it's really exciting and I'm curious to see what he's writing next. He's just kinda he's on my radar, so to speak. And that's one of the few books that I stopped reading uh and never finished. Which World War yep. Didn't like it. Huh. Be God. I did like I did like it. I threw it across the room. I liked it. Wow. <laughs> I didn't actually so but you really didn't. did it did it burn itself? <laughs> it did. I guess not. Uh no, I I didn't like despise it. It just I lost interest and Yeah. That was it. All right, so now what should we um what should we read next? Uh, one of the things I want to do ideally is actually even post something on our website, which is theincomparable.com about what the book club is reading last, next so we can maybe not fire off the spoiler horn um for the ne- for the next time at least for for some topic. Uh, I don't know if we'll settle it here or not, but do you guys have any suggestions of of things you think we should read or things that you're reading right now? Or things that are soon to come out, or Ooh. things that are soon to come out, that would work. I'm trying to look. I'm going to look at my my list of I, books. I just bought. Um, I just signed up for the Mongoliad. Uh, oh yeah, I was thinking about that, but I I, I love Stevenson, but I'm a little I'm a little skeptical of the multi-author approach. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I have two minds with I'll, Stevenson. I like him and I hate him at the same time, so it's difficult. <laughs> I, I I think we should probably talk about um, maybe. G- John Scalzi and Neil Stevenson next time. I think those would be fun topics. Um, the Mongoliad, by the way, you can go to mongoliad.com, spelled like it sounds. And it's uh, this shared world story over the course of a year, and you pay like 10 bucks. And I sort of paid because I'm intrigued by the idea, and I, I would like to encourage them to try it. And at some point, there's going to be a, like an iPad and iPhone app, so you can just read the story as it goes in the app, although it doesn't exist yet. Um <laughs> But I'm looking. I, I I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. It's like I want to support people trying new ways to do Absolutely. fiction on the internet. And if if it is if for ten bucks or whatever it was, it's like it's worth it. I'll, I'll give them I'll give them some seed money for them to try it and see if it works. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, fl- I'm flipping through my uh, my list of books that are you know that I I write down to make sure I I see when they come out. And unfortunately, I think most of them are sort of continuations of series. But one of the ones I'll throw out there is. The second book in a duology by Connie Willis, who is a great writer, um, in case you've never written, read anything that she has written. Um, she has written a number of things, including uh, Doomsday Book, which I believe was... Oh, yes. Oh, that was very good. Uh, and to say very, nothing of the dog. Uh, and to say nothing of the dog. And so she's re- revisited that same universe um, in a two-part series, the first of which came out earlier this year and the second of which comes out next month, called Blackout and All Clear, which are wow. about uh, basically also time travel stories that take place primarily during the Blitz. I loved those two books, um, To Say Nothing of the Dog and Doomsday Book. And what, what I found fascinating about them is Doomsday Book, great book, so depressing. So depressing. <laughs> and To Say Nothing of the Dog, same universe, is so funny. And, and not dark. And Blackout and All Clear, I would put somewhere in between the two. All right. It's not got the same quite as like, oh my God, I, you know, this is so, so like, oh God, I can't even take this that you get with Doomsday Book when you're, you're flipping through. You can't stop reading because it's so engrossing, right, but Doomsday at the same book time, is, it's just so like, for, so tragic. Um, for those who haven't read Doomsday Book, it's essentially you're, you get to meet a lot of nice people who are going to die of the Black Death. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's not. It doesn't have the farcical aspects of to say nothing of the dog, but it's <laughs> no. still. It, it's mainly focused on the history and of um, this world of the 
the blitz and you know that's sort of the experience of that and as we just i think we just passed the like the 60 something anniversary of it like last week i heard on the bbc so it seems a time a, a, a timely moment to revisit it right scott well, uh, are you guys familiar with this genre, this upcoming genre of uh, weird writing called Bizarro? Anybody? No? So anyway, no. one of the – I've recently become is, aware of it. Isn't he sort of an ugly gentleman who just dresses like Superman? <laughs> it, it, is, it is named after that, that ugly gentleman. Uh, <laughs> and, and I guess the whole point of the genre is that you just write these insane stories that, you know, are just insane. So one of the, the books that I've read uh, – it's only like 100 pages long – uh, is called Shatner Quake. We're right there. I mean, come on, you can't. So the the idea the 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 idea behind this book is that there it's set in an alternate universe where William Shatner has this cult of personality about him, which I guess is not too far from the truth. And uh, he got there are uh, conventions dedicated to William Shatner and his various roles, and he goes to one of these conventions. And in this world, there is a thing called a fiction bomb that destroys fiction. Uh, and so nefarious people who do not, who are, well, I don't want to ruin too much, but they, they don't like William Shatner. Uh, and so they set off one of these bombs and instead of destroying William Shatner's fictional work, it does the opposite and creates multiple Shatners throughout his various, <laughs> so there's TJ Hooker and Captain Kirk and William Shatner has to figure out a way to get out of this building that is full of himself. <laughs> yeah. And just like it's an apt choice of words. Yeah. I, I all I can say, Scott, is are there Zeppelins? Uh, I don't think there are. There are multiple Shatners, but no Zeppelins. So I don't know. Multiple Shatners. Multiple, multiple Shatners. Actually, Shatners. the conversion rate between Shatners and Zeppelin is roughly three William Shatners per Zeppelin. Well, there you go. Yes, when he was younger, it was larger. <laughs> the rate has fallen over time, That's as it does. So that Ren. Just... Ren, what about you? Yeah. Do we actually want to read Zero History? We want to. Officially put that on there. Well, it's it's in hardcover, so you'd really need to buy the ebook if you yeah. want to save some money, or go no, to the library. library. Library, um, I've got are it. Important. I I think it's a third part of a series, so I, I don't know if I want to recommend start having people read part three of a series because you know you probably be better off. I mean, you could. This is I true. could. I'm going to read it, but you know, I'm happy to read something else too. I'm not going to read it. it multiple shatters no scott's not gonna read let's read something that scott is gonna read so we'll we'll figure something out and post it on the website uh, any suggestions that you have ren uh the only book that i kind of have in my mind is not a newer book and is not necessarily a science fiction so i think i'm i'm gonna stay off of it for now all right oh. okay fair enough fair enough um i don't i don't really have anything to suggest at the moment i i um, I'm still plowing through the, I think it's last year's year's best science fiction anthology, which I like because it's, uh, uh I don't read the, read the sci-fi magazines or anything like that. And it's a nice dollop of, um, of short stories. And that's, that is a collection that I really love having, um, on e an ebook reader because it's a huge volume. It's like four or 500 pages and I never end up getting through it to the end because then I, when I've only got a hundred pages left, I look at the size and I can't bear to pack it and take it on a trip because there's so little of it left. And so I just never read the last stories in the, uh, in the book. They could be blank for all I know. And I wouldn't know. Um, but on a, on an ebook reader, it's actually great. And, and it's a good, um, that's the Gardner Dozois, Dozois, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Um, uh, year's best science fiction short story anthology. So I'll, I'll throw that out there for people who are uh, into the short story thing. It's uh, there's some good stuff in there. 
And at some point, we should probably talk about, uh, you know, like not current science fiction, but, you know, maybe Golden Age stuff, that kind of thing. Actually, that that wouldn't be a terrible uh, a terrible suggestion for that a book a for next time. <laughs> that would be a terrible goodbye, Scott. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think taking something that's sort of perceived as a classic, or at least it's been out there for five years or ten years or something like that, that we haven't read, or that only a few of us have read, and, and giving it a read might be a lot of fun. You uh, you you is funny because when you mentioned earlier the the Gibson thing, and I joked about him tying everything together. My first thought was like that sounds like something Isaac Asimov would do, and in fact did do. <laughs> That's true too, and there's some arguments there about whether that really uh, worked or not. When you <laughs> said, "I the robots in the foundation are the same," ha ha! Look, dun. you forgot the spoiler horn. Oh. Yes, can we still spoil? Can we spoil something when the writer's been dead for like twenty years? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Is there a statute of limitations on spoilers. Have you guys read "Spin" by Robert Charles Wilson? No, no, I, I know not. of it. Oh man, well maybe that should be what it is cuz that is a, that won uh the Hugo Award in 2006 and it is great, I think. Spin. No, I might I Robert might own Charles it. Wilson. That might be one of the other things I have but never read. Yeah, it's a good one. It's I'm looking at the Hugo winners here. Oh, and we want to we want to talk uh, Michael Chabon. So maybe what we should do is do Yiddish Policeman's Union. I think we all agreed last time mm-hmm. that that might be a good one to talk about. I might have, have to refresh my memory. Yeah, 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 but that was a good book too. So we'll we'll set something up, and we'll we'll uh, next time you hear from us, dear listener, um, we will have our act together, and all of us will have read um, something. <laughs> Maybe not the same. <laughs> Maybe thing. even the same. Yeah, who knows? And I guess that we've uh, reached the end of our time for now. Um, but as always, I want to remind everybody they can go to theincomparable.com. You can leave comments. You can send it, uh, your comments into podcast at theincomparable.com. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you think we should read, what you want to hear more of, your opinion about the spoiler horn, um, anything else. And until next time, I want to thank the uh, my fellow compatriots here on the podcast. Uh, Ren Caldwell, thanks for being here. Why, thank you. Scott McNulty, I'm glad that you finally got out of your shell and spoke up and told us what you really think. Worst podcast ever. And Dan Morin. I'm going back into my shell next time. All right. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) Until next time, for everybody here at The Incomparable, we'll see you later. Bye. All clear.